VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the show. It's Wednesday, August the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer, don't you know? We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, quick touchdown at the U.S. Open. All five Canadians threw to the second round, and the Shapovalov won yesterday, so five Canucks still in action at the last major of the year. A couple of quick shout-outs. Congratulations. Way to go. Good decision to the 2021-2022 U13 Scotiabank Jackals. They did away with their year-end party, and instead they made a $1,000 donation to the Don Johnson Hockey League Goodwill Fund, going to assist the new Ukrainian hockey players starting out in their new home for next and the upcoming hockey season. So that's a great gesture by the U13 Scotiabank Jackals. $1,000 donation. No pizza party. Good thinking. Good idea. All right, this one a little bit off the beaten track, but cool story. Congratulations to St. John's native Chris Dillon. Do you know who Chris Dillon is, Dave? Chris Dillon is Moondog. Moondog Dillon Davis. He's been invited to participate in what they refer to as a prestigious wrestling academy program, maybe a chance to elevate to the national stage. So he won. Chris receives a $5,000 cash prize, 14-week scholarship to train at the Nightmare Factory. It's a world-class professional wrestling facility in Atlanta, Georgia. Trains with a bunch of the big stars from the All Elite Wrestling Tour. So congratulations to him. Uh, Yeah, Chris Dillon, Moondog. Moondog Dillon Davis. Gotta like it. All right, a couple of interesting ones. It was today in 1963 that Walter Cronkite began anchoring CBS Evening News. Now, he began his career in 1936, curiously covering some news, but a lot of sports. So at the time, he was the, you know, the polls were uh, conducted in the United States, and he was the most trusted man in America. How times have changed with how people view the news. You hear it all the time, right? The mainstream media or the lamestream media or the legacy media. And some of those seeds have been planted and unfairly so. But Walter Cronkite, just imagine the things he saw and covered, including World War II, the Nuremberg trials, of course, Vietnam, the Dawson Field hijackings, Watergate, the Iran hostage crisis, assassinations, notably President John F. Kennedy. You can picture Cronkite behind the desk taking off his glasses, looking to the clock to announce that the president had indeed died. Uh, the assassination of Walter, or pardon me, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lennon as well. So he had a real keen interest in the space program as well. Like you hear us talk about space on this show every now and then. And so at the end of each broadcast, here's the way it went. It says, and that's the way it is for Wednesday, August 31st. Walter Cronkite, 46 years or something in the business. Just truly amazing stuff. Anyway, that was that. Little bit of a different switch here. And this one kind of jumped off the page to me because I was a massive fan of Foghorn Leghorn. (laughs) How's this for a little turn? 76 years ago today, Foghorn Leghorn the bombastic Warner Brothers cartoon character, made his debut in a short film called The Walkie Talkie Hockey. So, obviously, a large, overbearing, loudmouth rooster, southern accent, and the first name Foghorn, of course, indicates his personality. Leghorn is an actual particular Italian breed of chicken. 
So his voice was originally done by Mel Blanc, of course, an extraordinarily famous man. And you know all the catchphrases he would have with? And then he had a big prank war going with Barnyard Dog, D-A-W-G. And this was more about amusement than it was about malice, but Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> made his film debut today, 76 years ago, in 1946. How about that one? Okay, so back to school. And we have to talk about it because, of course, it's one of the most important parts of a year when we talk about the future, the hopes, the viabilities, prosperity of the province, a well-educated public. We know the last three years have been extremely difficult. The fits and starts and the hybrid models and people homesick and teacher issues regarding shortages, what have you. So this year is going to be extremely important. But it comes with a bunch of different things that I think maybe a little bit more attention required, too. So, you know some of the things and some of the recommendations that have been made about how and when, how you should or should not go to school. So, classes begin on September 7th. Masks are recommended, not mandatory. It's curious to know how parents are going to approach that this particular school year. It gets complicated when, and this has always been the message, but stay home if you are sick. Now, we know full well that there's lots of opportunities to have the sniffles and a cough. You might just have a lingering cough. You may indeed have allergies, and you can indeed go to school then. Think about what's happened in the last few years with the number of children, whether they test positive for close contacts or were not feeling well for whatever reason, stayed home, and with the tricky business of getting daycare. Parents and caregivers of school-aged children, they were using all their sick days, all their holiday days, simply for things like this. So how people are going to evaluate whether or not the checklist you abide by in the morning to see whether or not your child should go to school. Then there's the concept, and I think this is one of the most important things for ongoing concern, and this is not just about coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. This is about air purification and filtration systems. In public and private buildings, Air quality is a big deal. It leads to all sorts of complications. So ensuring that the purification systems and the air filtration systems are the best they can be. Because just think about it. We all have worked in places where it's pretty stale and you know full well the air quality is not good. And it wasn't that long ago when I was working, say, at Rogers, we would do stories about some of the air quality concerns in schools, and they were rampant. Now, classrooms have been, indeed been supplied with these air purification systems. Whether or not they're the best ones for the job, I don't know enough about it. People tell me they're not. But it's whether or not the attention has been given to all of these matters to prepare us to get back into school. And I think the daycare story is just massive. You may not have a child requiring daycare, especially infant daycare and or early childhood education, but that scramble is ongoing and families are being forced to make decisions about either taking some vacation time while they continue to look for daycare or maybe taking a leave of absence, who knows? Because not only the cost, but it's access and it's also the ratio, it's also the training and the rate of pay for early childhood educators. So I think daycare in conjunction with going back to school is a bigger story than we realize. Then you factor in some of the things we've learned about food insecurity, and one of the most startling numbers is that the national average of children who find themselves in a family that's food insecure is one in five. In this province, one in four, some 22,000 children. We know that there's good programs, kids eat smart and school lunch, but when we also factor in that it's tomorrow that the tax on sugary drinks kicks in and the debate on the floor of the House of Assembly was pretty frank from the government side when they forecasted revenue to the tune of $9 million and it would go to fund new, newly created programs. That hasn't been the case. So now we've got a bit more information on hand. 
So can we indeed see some of that tax on sugary drink revenue in a targeted approach to the 22,000 children who are hungry. Their families are scrambling, trying every day to come up with creative ways, solutions, to try to put some food on the table for themselves and of course for their children. So what about new programs that are very, very targeted on that front? We know the number inside uh, social assistance recipients and food insecurity is a huge number. What is it, 68.8%. How do you deal with that pragmatically? Because, just think about it. The assertion from a lot of corners is that there may indeed, and there very likely is, absolutely is, people receiving social assistance supports that don't need them should be doing something else. And that's not to paint everyone with the same brush. Of course not. There is the requirement for a social safety net. It's in our collective best interest that people do indeed have a leg up from the government when supports are required. But in that world, and this is really comes across as quite harsh when you hear it and see people say it, but... How do we ensure that we have the proper harm reduction policies in place and target spends so that monies from the government really do indeed find themselves, find themselves spent where is best for the family as a unit? whether to address food insecurity or otherwise. I am not trying to say that people on social assistance are blowing their money on the wrong things, whatever vices people may have. But the numbers are jumping off the page. Is it simply a matter that social assistance recipients just don't get enough money? They do not receive enough to pay their bills, pay their rent, pay whatever other bill pops into their mailbox, and to be able to afford food. If it was a problem three years ago, it's an even bigger problem today. We all know all the various factors as to why things are so expensive. But the food insecurity issue, maybe just maybe government could go back to the drawing board and with that revenue on the tax on sugary drinks, let's target support especially to address the food insecurity, hunger, poverty, modern day Canada, 2022. And we have 22,000 children in 2021 who were hungry, food insecurity. That's a nice way to gloss over the fact that they're hungry. So anyway, you want to take on some of the return to schools type of issues, whether it be more physical activity in the schools, and you know, how do we also factor in educational programs? I know we have the Canada Food Guide, and we talk about what's good for you and quote-unquote bad for you to drink or to eat, but obviously we're still in a place where you know, our sedentary lifestyle and our diet, it's not me exaggerating it, and I don't pretend to be the walking picture of health, and I got a front porch that proves exactly that I should be making some better choices as well, so put it out there. This story, almost hate to bring it up, but you know, as we try to give our children a little bit more rope and a bit more independence, whether it be the first time you can cross the street on your own, or to be able to ride your bicycle on the street versus circling on the driveway, go to the park by yourself, all these little opportunities to give them some awareness, self-awareness and awareness of their surroundings to protect them, and not to bubble wrap them, but to protect them. Then you hear these stories coming from Spaniards Bay about possible attempted child luring. It's a tricky conversation to have with your kids. You don't want to scare the heck out of them about these types of matters. But of course, some of these conversations are required. So there's a report, so this guy apparently, and multiple reports of the same person, a man around 60 years of age, white or gray hair and a beard, driving a white four-door car, maybe a Hyundai Elantra. It's got black pinstripes on the doors. So how do you have those conversations? I. I'm not even sure exactly what we did in talking with our boys it's so long ago. But you can't avoid them because they're real. I'll take it on. 
We can do it. All right, coming up at 11 o'clock this morning, the three health authorities, Labrador, Grenfell, Western, and Eastern Health, will have a virtual news conference about the pouring over some mammography results. Everyone knows the story now. Out in Central Health, they're looking at some 3,000 patients and their results. Of course, everybody needs to know that their test has been accurately reviewed and they got accurate, verifiable information from the regional health authority. But also inside this story, which I think is egregious, is that an annual audit over the course of the last three years did not flag this problem to ensure that all standards are being met, whether it be for tests and how we review the tests, how we provide the results. If we've got problems like this, how can they possibly persist for the course of three years? It just makes these annual audits just so much more important than people even think about or give them credit for. Sometimes some of the audits and annual reviews, we end up hearing from the Auditor General, for instance, or the Child and Youth Advocate, or the Seniors Advocate. But for ongoing operational concerns at the hospitals and clinics, the four regional health authorities, man, how can we not flag these things? You know, there's standards that have to be met, national standards. And this just came and went, but anyway, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Let's keep going. So yesterday, we found out in Supreme Court there has indeed been a buyer selected to take on Canada Floor Spire, the St. Lawrence Floor Spire Mine. There is an NDA in place, a non-disclosure agreement. We don't really know a whole, whole lot about this. A formal deal is weeks down the road. We're going to go back, apparently, to court by October 17th to see who indeed is this person, this buyer, and what their plans are. The indications coming from Grant Thornton is that the person the person who's been selected or the company that's been selected to buy the mine is going to reopen the mine. And apparently they quote-unquote big plans for the mine. Excellent news for folks down on the Buren Peninsula and the 250 jobs and the 250 families potentially that will be back to work. The market for the acid-grade floor spire is really quite strong. It's part of the manufacturing of a variety of things, no- notably aluminum, glass. So they've got big plans for the mineral, but of course the infrastructure shortcoming out there has been well documented. Canada Floor Spire owes about $95 million to three secured creditors, another $23 million to unsecured creditors, and about $10 million in capital costs, machinery and otherwise. So, Bridging Finance Incorporated, but I guess most importantly for me and you, is the provincial government provided a $17 million loan, so we can all hope that the Canada Floor Spire Mine in St. Lawrence is back in action sooner than later, but we won't know possibly until October 17th when they plan on finalizing the deal. So, Grant Thornton went through the courts, looked for an extension because they had to have things done by a certain date. We're still in the throes of the negotiations, but it looks like good news coming there. If you're in the region, you want to talk about it, let's go. And remember, when they reactivated the mine in 2018, there was a lot of concerns coming from St. Lawrence in particular, where they were told that they would be hired as a priority. Very much like, like the benefits agreements we see in place for whatever development. You know, locals hired first. You know, up in Labrador, indigenous peoples are at top of the hierarchy, priority to be hired. Then people who live in Labrador, then people who live in the province, and then the rest of the country, and then the rest of the world. But in St. Lawrence, I'm sure they'll be keen to see. Now, for the most part, this will be a matter of recalling the 250 that have been laid off. But who knows? Some of them may have moved on to different chances and jobs somewhere else in the country. I've been to Grand Bank in the last 16 years, and I'm familiar with the eyesore that is the Atlantic Pursuit. The Atlantic Pursuit was owned by Clearwater Seafoods and it was hit by a rogue wave back in December 2006. It's been sitting there in Grand Bank Harbor ever since. 
So Clearwater, they sold the vessel. So this is not on them. And it's changed hands many, many times. Different companies have tried to put it back in service. They've always failed. But it looks like now it'll be out of that harbor for once and for all. Anyone who's ever been to Grand Bank in the last 16 years can probably, with their mind's eye, picture the Atlantic pursuit. And I'm glad it's gone. And I'm sure everybody who's in and around Grand Bank and Grand Bank Harbor will be happy to see the backside of the Atlantic pursuit as it's hauled out of there. Okay. This is not new, but this comes with a lot of different, more dire language than we've heard from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro regarding what's going on with the Labrador Island Link and the opportunity for Muskrat Falls to be in full, operational, and delivering the power as planned. We all know the price tag, and at this moment still remains at $13.37 billion, likely to be more than that, I think is the the consensus out there. For the 16th time, Liberty Consulting has provided a report to the Public Utilities Board. And it is a lot different than what we hear from Jennifer Williams at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Hydro seems optimistic and bullish on the fact that they're working towards the final solution. But you, uh, the Liberty Consulting Group says it remains speculative to consider that the Labrador Island Link as having materially advanced towards completion this past quarter. Two major setbacks in this period left it at the quarter end nominally were stood at the quarter start. Without so control software suitable for su supporting full-scale operation or the final commissioning stages that precede commercial operation. So they go on to say they anticipate continuing failure to reach commercial operation before or during this coming winter and perhaps well after after. So there's a bunch of different thresholds that have to be met associated with whether or not it's given the green light. So the Labrador Island Link must operate for 30 days in bipole mode without interruption to pass the critical trial operations milestone. Thereafter, final adjustments should lead to placing it into commercial operation. Many past efficiencies have kept the Labrador Island Link for readiness for or success in completing trial operations. So a little bit more stark than we hear. Maybe not before winter, maybe not during the winter, maybe not after the winter. So where we absolutely are, price tag and that software and soldiers pound and all the rest of it remains to be seen. Looks like there's a minor cabinet shuffle on the federal front today. Don't see a whole lot. Even some of these key sources to the main media outlets are saying it's maybe one or two people shifting, shuffling portfolios. So we'll see what happens. All right, we're on Twitter. We're a VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. All right. Tune on the go here. This tune was on the charts for 30 separate weeks on a variety of charts, pop charts, dance charts. Rolling Stone said in 2000 it's one of the 100 greatest pop songs of all time. Born this day in 1957, Gina Shock. She's a drummer. Born in Baltimore, Maryland. A drummer known best for playing with the Go-Go's. Here are the Go-Go's. Our lips are sealed. When we come back, you unseal yours. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us begin on the top of the board, line number one. Brad, you're on the air. How you doing, Betty? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Hey, I'm phone. I want to talk about the macro. Uh, okay. Or the macro we got, where the minister cut the quota down to zero. Um, like uh, we were sharing a quota with the U.S. over the year, over the last 40 years. I've been at this for 40 years, so I, I know a little bit about what I'm going to say. <laughs> and. Uh, here we are with a, with a million pound of mackerel coming out of that Atlantic Ocean the year, and we're cut down to zero. And the mackerel has never been so thick before in the history. Right from Charlottetown, Labrador, right on up to Beatty Verde, on the West Coast, over around Bellberry's country, everywhere. And we were sharing a quota with the U.S. 100,000 ton, they had 100,000 ton. 75,000 ton, they went to 75,000. Now we're blocked out to zero. 
first off facing this 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 uh, macro. Do you in order got a million ton to catch the year in the Atlantic Ocean, the same ocean we're fishing, and we can't catch now. And Patty, it was a decision made by the minister that was very little science, well, no science, and and I can't already blame the minister because the science that they gave her was incorrect. Like, we have thousands of macro. We've been talking to the science a couple of years ago about the macro, and they they don't understand where our macro come from. And the bit of science they're doing is they're doing it in southern Gulf above Nova Scotia for a fishery that uh, is there on the northeast coast of Newfoundland. It's, 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 it blow your mind the money we're losing. Like, if we go back to the 100,000 ton of macro we had, Patty, uh, that's 100,000 ton times 2.2. That's 240 million pounds of mackerel we can land this year. Now, is that what the, the U.S. quota is, Brad? I thought it was around 5,000 tons. That's not right? Yeah, this year, yes. Okay, 5,000 tons this year. And, you know, the problem that you point to is obviously the big one here is, well, I guess two things. The most recent science is as old as 2019, which is not helpful. And then trying to distinguish whether or not it's the same uh, the same stock or a different stock off the coast of our province in the Gulf, off the eastern seaboard of the United States. It's just so much confusion in here. But the one thing that is not confusing at all, and it's a double standard, is if we were sharing a quota and it mirrored each other between the macro quota here, macro quota in the United States, we would marry each other every year. Now it's zero here, but it's 5,000 ton in the United States. It just makes no sense at all. Like this, no. this is just completely bizarre. What kind of money is involved with macro for you, Brad? Okay, listen, now, Patty, this, 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 like you talked about the sugar tax, $9 million a few minutes ago, right? Yep. Yep. That, that, that's, not, that's not real money. That's, that's just money that's in the province stuck on the round, as far as I'm concerned. That's true. It's still $9 million. But now, if we go back to our 100,000 ton, which we should have 100,000 ton, whether we catch the 100,000 ton or we don't, we've got to be ready when they come. Macro migrates to Newfoundland. When they migrate, they come. The weather got to be right, the temperature got to be right, and then they come. And we got to have a quota, so when they come. And this year they came, and we got no quota. So 100,000 ton... Uh, that's 240 million pounds, and I I googled myself this morning. In the in the Eastland, they're getting a dollar forty U.S. a pound, so that's 330 million dollars. This province could land in the next three months. That's 330 million, Patty. It's so it's complicated on a variety of fronts. You know, obviously, way more about it than I do, Brad. So it's not just landed value and for export or what have you. What's the implication here for the price of bait? With a bait, if I gotta go buy bait now, I'm gonna pay dollar thirty pounds or dollar forty pounds for mackerel. As opposed okay. to be able to catch it and use it or sell it for bait and or consumption. Yes, and and, and this mackerel, we catch this mackerel day. Like you can turn on the news whenever you want now, and, and every uh, person is talking about the shortage of your food. Here we can land 240 million pounds of mackerel to help this food chain. And 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 here we, you can drive down the road here, Patty. I'm not I'm not exaggerating. You can drive these rough roads we got here and go down to any government wharf on the northeast coast, east coast, or Labrador and go find a government wharf and cash your rod out and catch whatever macro you want anywhere this year. I got, there's, I get emails in Texas like by the 50s and hundreds a day. Uh, people send me pictures of macro and everything. And, and here we are at zero. Zero. Now, I'll give you a little rundown, Patty. What happened two years ago when we had 10,000 tons? We cut. We cut the 10,000 on, then they went back to 8,000 on, all right? So when we were close to kitchen 8,000 on, we got together as a committee, uh, the, the personnel committee. I'm on the personnel committee. It's on the union. 
get a meeting with the science and let's see if we can't add that other two thousand ton on because the macro there so we got the science on and the deputy minister of fisheries on a call and we asked the question can we catch another two thousand ton absolutely not science don't recommend we catch another two thousand ton okay that was fair so we asked them would they come and look at the macro uh, on our boats and come out and look at the macro and see how much macro was there no they was not interested in coming so uh, then we said, uh, well, why don't you get a plane or a helicopter and fly over and see the macro yourself? Because you can see them from there mm-hmm. or up on the water school, right? So we asked him that. And he said to me, this is his words. He said, Mr. Ryder, we know you got the macro. We know you got abundance of macro. But we don't know their pattern of migrating, and we don't know where they're spawning. So my question back to him was, so what you're saying, because you don't know how he got there, or where did he come from, you're not going to give us no quota. That's pretty well it. Now, and that, and that, that's ridiculous. Well, especially when they're talking about their own shortcomings, whether it be the research vessels and all the problems they've had with parts and stuff, I mean, that's not your problem, that's their problem. I was wondering if you were Brad Rideout, uh, because I remember reading a story where there's a picture of the sounding from your boat of a school of mackerel, right? Yes. Uh, okay, right. so that's you, fair enough. Where do you fish out of? I fish out of Robert Sherman. Okay. Yeah, there, there's a big disconnect here, Brad. I think everyone would agree. You know, it's one thing to say the science doesn't support it, but we don't even have updated science. And for DFO or anyone in the science world to say, well, we don't know where they came from, we don't know where they spawn, well, that's kind of what they're supposed to be doing for a living, isn't it? Isn't that the questions they're supposed to be answering for you? Well, Patty, look at it this way. The only one that's getting a paycheck right now at the macro is science. I'm not getting one. The plant worker's not getting one. And when you're talking three hundred and thirty million dollars, your retirement is going to affect every someone new for land. We can have new pavement. We can have hospital beds, boys, at three hundred and thirty million. And for them to do the bit of science to do, I, I was involved in this science we done. I did the science one year. And what you do, you got a basket like it's as big as a, a basket net for for basketball, and I got a fine mesh net on it. You put it down, you tow it for five minutes, you pull it up, see if there's any la- uh, eggs or larvae in it, right? Eh? Uh, not larvae, uh, get the word gone now. But don't make no difference, uh, the eggs are from the macro. And then you move on eight mile and you do it again. You do 24 lots, and that's what I did, 24 lots. And here they are doing this in Southern Gulf, Ross, up here on the Northeast Coast, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Mm-hmm. But how are we going to know when the macro's on the Northeast Coast and not in the Gulf? Yeah, Patty, how stupid it is to me is if they go up there and drill three holes down in the ocean bit and come out and say to the Minister of Resources, boy, you got to shut down Ibernia. We never find no oil in the southern Gulf. That's how stupid it is on the macro. <laughs> That's an so, interesting analogy. I get what you're saying. Uh, Brad, I appreciate the time, and we're going to see. We always try to see if we can get any uh, further clarification from either the minister's office or from a DFO representative. We'll, we'll keep trying because this one doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if the U.S. are still uh, fishing the quota that was always going to be so-called split. 50000 there, 50000 here. I appreciate the time, Brad. It's one more quick thing, Betty. Quickly. Like, you think if I was a company outside of Newfoundland and I was going to come and invest $330 million of new money in this province in the next three months, boy, geez, we would have some celebration. And we can land $330 million of macro this fall, I'm telling you, without a doubt. Thanks for this, Brad. Stay in touch. Yep. 
Okay, thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, Pat's in the queue to talk about hurricane season. Remember, it's not that long ago that hurricane season was predicted to be pretty active. It hasn't been yet. No named storms as of yet, but I did read a story, and the quote's coming from the National Center for Atmospheric Research, saying maybe still hold on because hurricane season generally extends right through november or into november so we'll see what pat has to say after this don't go away weekdays on vocm it's open line with your host patty daly join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m to noon on your vocm we get people talking and welcome back let's go line number three good morning pat you're on the air uh, hi, Patty. Was calling because uh, I was watching the news last night, and it made me wonder what's happening here in Atlantic Canada. But anyway, I'm watching the uh, some international news last night. Uh, there was which is could be a major, major typhoon over off of Japan, but uh, the biggest storm of uh, the year over there, uh, typhoon High in Namamura. Uh, expected to hit this weekend with, with sustained gusts over 180 kilometers an hour. So I was saying, we have we had and looking, have we even had a named storm? No, zero. It's for, the, for August, and we haven't. No, this is only the second time it's happened since 1960. Zero named storms by this uh, time of the year. Okay, Patty, because you've got more data than I got. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, so second time, second time since uh, 1961, you say? Since 1960, yeah. Wow. So now there is one thing that I know. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a meteorologist, but I know it's related to heating and water vapor in the air and all of this stuff. Now it has been way, way drier air in the Atlantic than normal. My question is, I mean, if there's a meteorologist out there that can be reached or, uh, you know, like Rodney Barney, Ryan Snodden, Ashley Buckwaller, if most some of these, or if not, if there's a climatologist out there who can give, because I don't see anywhere anybody saying, is this just an uh, abnormal phenomenon this year? you know, related to very dry air or something? Or is this uh, something that is going to be the new norm in climate change? I don't know. And and that's what, I want to, that's what I'd like to know, Patty. There's a guy uh, quoted in the story that I read. His name is Jeff Weber. He's an at- atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He points to what he thinks are the reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing. He talks about something called a blister on the planet. It's a, a, it's a persistent of high pressure. So that was one of the factors that forced, or pardon me, fueled some of the forest fires in North America last year. It's been sitting over Europe and Asia. It's a big part of their intense drought. He says because of the lack of moisture, it could be just simply a delay in hurricane season. I mean, I don't know, but that's what this research scientist is saying. So he told the world, Atlantic Canada, North America, that because we haven't had a named storm doesn't mean we're through. Seas, oh, no, uh, the sea surface maybe. temperature is warm, so he still thinks maybe 10 to 14 storms in this particular season, and the storms are characterized different ways, right? A tropical storm, sustained winds of 63 kilometers an hour or more. Hurricane, sustained winds of over 120 kilometers an hour, if I remember correctly. So he says we're not out of the woods yet because a hurricane can develop within days, and the season can run right through November, so there's still some of the hurricane season left to consider. 
Ed, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, looking at looking at graphs that I looked at, at and why it was kind of interesting to me is the peak hurricane season here in Atlantic Canada. Most storms originate around the September 10th, 11th date. Okay. That's the that, that's the date that I'm getting from graphs that I see of peak 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 time in Newfoundland of uh, in Atlantic Canada and uh, U.S. Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, I think that's what we all think of. If you had to just poll people on the street, when you think hurricane season really has an impact on Atlantic Canada, people would get September. Uh, I would think they would anyway. So we're told we're not out of the woods, and I don't know what the future holds in any realm or any uh, factor of society or the hurricane season, but that's some of the comments coming from an atmospheric scientist. David, it'd be kind of fun or interesting we can get someone like that. They're in Boulder, Colorado, if I remember the story properly. We'll see if we can get him on. Why not? He's doing news interviews, so maybe he'll do one with us. Exactly, because I'd like to know is this just, just, you know, that okay, so you mentioned this blister effect, which uh, first time I'm hearing too, so I love to look at Google what that means. Yeah, it's called blister on the planet is what the reference is. But anyway, okay, so let's say this is the reason for less water vapor in the air and maybe even there's something uh, there that I've heard of uh, hurricanes deal with wind shear as well or something. And so... Is this just an abnormal effect, or is this something related to climate change? That's that's what I'd like. To, that's what I'd like to know. Is it just a one-off? Understood. Rare, or or is it you know, is this a new norm? And if this is a new norm, well, maybe we have to be concerned because, like other climate change events, severity. So you end up with less but you end up with more severe. Yeah, depending on the weather phenomenon we're talking about, but I get your point, and that's questions that I'm happy to ask. We will absolutely reach out to this fellow, Jeff Weber, down in Boulder, Colorado, see if we can't make five, ten minutes for the show to talk about it. Good topic. Appreciate the call this morning, Pat. Okay, thanks, Patty. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, second time since 1960 that we haven't had a name storm by the end of August. Will I take another one before the break, Dave? Sure. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, just wanted to touch base this morning. We put a, a news release out, a press release on the um, air access, especially the international access. But I... I Look at two areas in our economy, uh, tourism and fishery. Brad hit the nail on the head this morning and, and looked at the fishery. We need to know what the action plans are in our province and what headway we're making in order to grow those two staples of our uh, of our economy, the tourism and the fishery. There is no doubt we need to see an action plan. Uh, today, I just want to touch base on the air access, and I know the news uh, release uh, stated in that was that we were disappointed or many tourists and residents that were in the district of Bonavista were disappointed in the lack of air routes that come directly to our province from Europe. Um, we also contend that air access will only become more important in the years ahead. And, I, you know, you talk about the hydrogen and, and so on. It's 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 there. If this materializes, then we're only going to see a, a huge increase. And we also believe that for uh, business and tourism opportunities, we can't meet our potential if the province is not internationally accessible. John Fisher at Fisher Loft in Port Rexton uh, just said goodbye to an English friend, he tells me. And the English friend had to leave Newfoundland, fly to Toronto, 
for to get a, a connecting flight to the UK. And if you think that is not a serious, significant impediment to those people wishing to fly to Newfoundland and Labrador and in our marketing, then that is huge. Well, I mean, to leave here, to go wherever, last time we went was Halifax and then across, but to fly over your own house, I live in the flight path, it is extremely frustrating. Whether it be green hydrogen, whether it be big opportunities coming to the mining sector, tourism, just regular business travel from here, people who would just consider how easy, how costly is it to get to one locale or another, we would be way down the list. So, with the growing demand... That doesn't mean that the carriers are going to come here. It just does not. We had growing demand on our WestJet fl- direct flight to Dublin. Ticket sales were up year over year. They left for Stanfield International in Halifax. So when you say working with airlines, what does that mean? Because it probably means on the airline side, a big slash in landing fees, a big slash in every fee they pay to be uh, have St. John's International or wherever as a pub. Yep. Patty, I've I, uh, been in communication with Michael Holan. Michael spent 19 years with EF Tours and, and knows the airline industry quite well. Uh, recently communicated to Luke Power. Uh, Luke is a, a resident of St. John's, which is now employed in in London. Uh, he was an investment baker at City in, in London. And Sean uh, is a friend who is uh, at Cambridge University. So in discussion with them, we looked at, and the research would state uh, that when the Dunderdale government uh, embarked upon a program, they hired a, an airline uh, consultancy firm, uh, InterVistas, I, I believe they were. But anyway, what came of it was that they established flights because, according to that study, they knew that the market was there. It showed that there was a demand. And I know that they were subsidized, those three routes that they had put in place, and without naming them, but they were subsidized probably to the tune of a million dollars. What has happened now is that we've got Halifax, which has basically done the same thing, and they've invested to the tune of $14 million into it, $2 million short of what we spent on, on come home year. I would say to you that we need to be reaching out to the WestJet, which, uh, again, uh, moved to Nova Scotia. We had the Dublin to St. John's route. We also need to be reaching out to some other carrier our carriers, and, and there are numerous Uh, And just seeing as to we can establish those direct routes to St. John's because, as history would show, is that it is profitable. the uh, hospitality in Newfoundland and Labrador would tell you that uh, every $1 resident tourism generates in GDP. The non-resident visitors from the rest of Canada, uh, 80% coming from Ontario, uh, they generate double, $2. But international travelers spend three times as much as the, the domestic tourists. So, you know, if we look at uh, what we can yield for like uh, Brad Rideout has said, for the roads, for the health care, we need to be looking at how we can double what we're currently taking in. And sometimes we seem that we're complacent with what we're getting and get super excited about the amount that, it, that comes in without looking as to where it ought to be. And air access internationally is one. It would be nice for the minister. Let's, let's hear what the action plan and what is happening out there. You're not going to be able to get the intricate details out, but are they working towards it? And what markets are we pursuing? So Germany is one that comes up now, Patty, that we look at Germany for the obvious reasons. They often say that you can pick out uh, residents of Germany at many airports in Europe because they got a, a backpack on their back. They love the wilderness. They love the outdoors. 
a logical pursuit would be some of these flights uh, that would be, you know, maybe British Airways, uh, German Wings, or... Lufthansa. You know, just a thought that pops into my mind, and I, I look, I think you're on the right track because every time we've lost through, people just say, oh, well, that's it, boy, that's what happens. Well, it's really not good enough to say, oh, well, that's it. No. If Halifax found a way to steal our direct flight to Dublin, it's not talking about stealing or poaching, it's about how to make it an attractive option. What the really most important part is for me is, you know, it's easy enough to say, you know, with new deals with Germany, Berlin, St. John's would be great. But I think becomes even more impactful is if we had direct flights from, say, for instance, Newark, New Jersey, because it's a major international airport that takes direct flights from all over the world. If you could take a direct flight from Newark, we could have people that use Newark uh, International th- coming from London and Berlin and from Dublin and from Asia and from the United States, wherever. Those, Even if you just had that one direct flight twice a week from Newark, that would make all the difference in the world. And, and Patty, remember, I, I, uh, I mentioned the, the, the Dunderdale administration when they had the air access program. Uh, the report, uh, I, am I, as I am told, was that these flights, then number one was from the New York area. Yeah, sure. That, that, that they had a huge market for the New York area. Now, we all know that what can happen with Europe and what that can do for us. So I would say there's a lot of work to be done. One of the most things that I look back in the House and we've achieved and we've had many discussions in the House, I keep thinking back when the budget is read and they talk about the amount that is out there for the fisheries, a little over $1 billion, a little over $1 billion for tourism. And, and the excitement and the applause, they're standing to their feet when they announce it. Really, it's only scratching the surface. We, we ought to have a plan. So, so Dunderdale, I'm not sure how many years now since uh, Dunderdale. We're looking at uh, maybe 10 years or more. Thereabouts, yeah. But do you think from 10 years to now that we haven't really seen that plan other than just losing what direct flights that we, we've had? And we want to grow tourism. So I think it would beg that we need to know what is the action plan, what is being done, and let's become more um, economical in retrieving money. We're looking at the debt, but lots of times we need to spend on what can we do to bring in more revenue. Tourism and fishery are two logical ones that we've had here, but we're missing plans. Appreciate the time this morning, Craig. Thank you. Can I just slip in two quickly? Quickly. Two events in the district. We got the Relay for Life happening at Bonavista Stadium on September the, the 10th. Uh, again, now open this year at the stadium. Uh, 140,000 since they began in 2019. All money raised for Daffodil Place. And the second event I just want to highlight is that uh, it was 200 years ago on this Monday that William M. Epps Cormack and his Mi'kmaq guide, Sylvester Joe, left Milton here in the district of Bonavista and traveled the interior of the island and did some phenomenal work. So we've got a a commemorative uh, anniversary um, celebration in Milton at the the monument on Bar Road at uh, 11.30 on Monday. I just want to throw those out there. Patty, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Take care, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Craig Party, the MHA for Bonavista. Uh, Break time. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. You're a godsend to me today. You know why? No. I, I need to express what I have found out in regards to what's going on in the healthcare system. Uh, my sister, I called you last week about my sister, and uh, I told you that uh, she had uh, three discs in the bottom of her back uh, and uh, two discs in the top of her back. 
and uh, the nerve, the disc are damaged. They're, they're damaged. They're sharp, and they're cutting into the nerves. Okay, because of this damage, because of this neglect, my sister today is debilitated. She's not able to move at all. She's in constant pain, and I mean constant pain, crying all the time, making uh, calls to uh, her doctor, going to the emergency, getting a Band-Aid put on it, uh, meeting, with, meeting with the surgeons, uh, and I'm, I'm going uh, to tell you what I'm after finding out. For one thing, uh, her doctor uh, promised her he was going to call her about uh, uh, when he found out anything. He went on vacation, okay? That's how he handled it. Uh, the uh, surgeon had her in for consultation, okay? He sat down with her. He promised her in six to eight weeks he would have her in and do her surgery. Uh, knowing, knowing full well there were no surgeries being done this summer. Uh I'm after calling Eastern Health Client Relation. I'm after reaching out every avenue I can think of to help me. Uh, you call that number. You get an answer. Same thing. You, you, they give you these botch numbers. There's no way to get a hold of them. There's no way to leave a message. There's no contact whatsoever. They got you completely shut off in the system. I'm, uh, you know... Uh, uh, I'm after leaving messages. They, their, their system, the way of handling it is uh, with the client relation, Eastern Health. We'll get back to you in three days. Three days, uh, you know, and, and here you are calling on an emergency situation. You know, uh, my sister can end up in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And uh, I'm after begging. I'm after calling in, into the secretary's office, into the Confederation building. We have a premier who is supposed to be in health care. He's a doctor. He should know better. When a person tries to call them and try to talk to them what's going on in our health care, the broken, broken system that is not working for people today, and trying to tell him what's going on, and trying to correct the problems in our health care, and don't even bother to pick up the phone to get back to you. I mean, what is wrong with people today? Where is the decency and respect for human life anymore? And uh, my heart, my heart is broken today, knowing that I, I have gone through this process all week long, trying to get help from my sister. And we have a system. Oh, put her on an on a, on a answering machine. Let the answering machine do the work. Where are the people the, behind these services that, that are supposed to be helping people, to, to help people when they're in need? Where are they? What are they doing? What are they getting paid for? What, what, are, what are we as, as, as people in society that, uh, that are entitled to some decency of health care uh, getting treated like dogs? And I mean dogs, Patty. I mean dogs. Because if anybody knew the pain and the suffering, my sister has been going through this 19 months, misdiagnosed, uh, put on hold, not answering, not answering calls. 
I mean, this is ridiculous, Patty. We understand your concern, and unfortunately, I was hoping that there'd be a more positive update coming this morning versus the fact that she's still waiting and no one's able to speak to her, other than the fact that she understands that the surgeon has taken a holiday and all the other complicating factors here. I'm really sorry to hear she's in such the state that she is, Marie, but I have to get to the news, but I'm really sorry for you and your family. But, but, but Patty, what I don't understand... Is what? Why do we have a surgeon making consultations with people I don't know. for surgeries and, and knowing full well there's no surgeries. There, there's not going to be any surgeries. What's the point of it all, uh, Patty? What's the point of it? Why what? put people through all this suffering? The false hope makes things even worse on top of the physical pain. I, I understand that point. Marie, I wish we had a more positive update, and hopefully we'll get one of those soon. But thank you for this. Wish your sister well, well for me. Well, Patty, like, uh, you can wish I'm your to sister well now. for me. Well, I'm to the point now. I will be going. If, some, if something soon's not done, I'll be going to NTV and CBC with this. Well, you won't get a bigger audience in here, but uh, anyway, I hope that everything works out for you and your family, and I appreciate your time. Say hello and uh, wish your sister well for me. God bless you, Patty. You, you're, you're, you're a saint. God bless Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, whatever we're talking about after this, well, that is up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back. Let's see here. Line number four. Tom, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Hello. Uh, I want to get my driveway paved. Uh-huh. There was a company in Bay Roberts that used to do that, but he's retired and his company's closed down. So I don't wonder if there's anybody else in Bay Roberts who does paving. I don't know. It's it's hard lines getting a driveway done sometimes, depending on where you are in the province. You know, the big operations, they gear up for the big contracts, and it's tricky to get the driveway done. I don't think I've even seen one driveway done in my neighborhood this year, which is unusual. So you're looking for a paving company that's willing to take on a driveway in Bay Roberts. Yeah, now there's a company in, in Carbon Air okay. that does paving. If I can't get everybody in Bay Roberts, I'll have to go to them, I guess. I suppose. I don't know what paving companies would be located in Bay Roberts. Have you had a look around? Well, I, I looked in the phone book uh, just uh, and got the, just to get their numbers, too. Okay. I'm just having a quick look in my little catalog of stuff here. Uh, Concord Paving, well, they're out in Carbonier. The, the, the English is paving. I think they're in Paradise. Condor pa Con Concord Paving, yeah, they're in Carbonier. That's yeah. what I contacted yesterday. Yeah, I figured as much. Uh, so if anyone out there knows that there's a paving company in Bay Roberts, let me know, and I'll pass along the phone number and the name of the company in the town. How's that? Okay, thanks very much. You're welcome, Tom. I appreciate that. Thanks for my, taking my call. My pleasure. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I need to get my driveway sealed. I think I missed the boat on that one. Huh, let's go to line two. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I don't know if you like this hot weather, but I was saying to, to, to the producer, uh, I, I, I'll take a blustery, stormy day in February any old time than, 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 than this stuff. Nah, this is pretty nice. I mean, just imagine how beautiful it is for the 31st of August, and it looks like some nice, warm, summer-type weather in the offing, too. So, good I stuff. Want, I want some cool September weather thank you anyway. uh, it'll be won't be too long before it cools down charlie and I, I heard someone talking about the almanac forecast for this particular winter i think we should hold down to the nice weather as long as we can because there might be some stormy conditions ahead okay patty i've got two questions here regarding the hydrogen deal that may have been already asked but i haven't heard it so i'll take a chance uh somebody said originally this was scheduled for offshore 
uh, windmills as opposed to onshore. Is that right? Not that I know of. The only proposal I've seen was for 164 wind turbines onshore. Okay, that, that's okay. That may be off base there. This is one of the concerns I have now because we don't seem to know very much about the internal workings of this deal, if there is a deal. Okay, we, have, we, we do cost analysis and we say to Germany, we'll sell you this at a certain rate. I presume those discussions have taken place behind the scenes. I doubt it. Well, if if if, if you're going to make a guarantee to buy and the project is going ahead, you're going to you're going to eventually have to uh, have to name a price, right? I would assume so, but nowhere inside any anything in the realm of MOUs or joint declarations of intent, what have you, to think that they've boiled it down to a price already, given the fact that the variables between now and 24 or 25 regarding production costs, shipping costs, uh, current price of power in Germany for whether it is wind, they're paying like 40 cents per kilowatt hour, it's unbelievable. So I don't know if you can bar- you can nail down a price with the well, the, uh, the final exports so, so far down the road? Well, they're talking about going ahead, going ahead and having it uh, on stream in three years, which, which is quite fast. So at some point, at, on the basis of cost, they have to, uh, they have to do that, uh, establish a price. Now, if you remember Muskrat Falls, it was six point something billion, and we talked about the price to the consumer and all that, and you know what happened after. Most mega projects in this world today don't stay uh, on, online with, with, with the initial uh, uh, estimate. Let's say they do come to an agreement and they build uh, this thing and they run into all kinds of things like labor problems or unforeseen problems and it doubles in price. What I'm wondering is would there be a plan B for the, the, I'm, I'm sure the Newfoundland government wouldn't be involved, although I'm not so sure after it gets built, to, to stabilize the thing, because once it's in place, governments don't want to see it fail. And if Germany says, I'm sorry, we, we, we agreed on, on 30 cents and now it's 60 cents, uh, what are you going to do about that? And the thing is built, the jobs are, are there, what, as a federal government, which really wants this project to, to, to go ahead because it's carbon emissions, uh, this is, they want to be a leader in hydrogen production anyway. Uh, I'm wondering, would there be some kind of backup thing? Because there will almost have to be, because for sure it's going gonna, it's gonna to go up in price. Yeah, but I, I think we're assuming an awful lot inside that scenario. I don't even know if John Risley and his team uh, know for final numbers what they project the cost will be. Certainly there's a difference between when governments are building something versus the private sector is building something. I mean, just look at the way the province handles some of the contracts at Muskrat Falls with even like a... We're paying man hours as opposed to a cubic, or, uh, cubic feet of concrete poured. I mean, we're just doing things so backwards that it kind of got away from us based on just some deeply flawed contracts that were let by, indeed, the government. So I think Risley's probably better equipped to do a job on budget, on time, versus how we've seen the past boondoggle. And I think we're, most of us are jaded with Muskrat. When I don't really think there's much in the way of a comparison between this project and Muskrat Falls, I was the only consumer. I was the only customer. 
customer, as opposed to if it's between Risley, World Energy, GH2, the country of Germany or companies inside the country of Germany, then that's on them. You know, if there's any provincial monies, then we have to talk about that till the cows come home. There's definitely going to be federal government money in it, but backstops for worst-case scenario, budgets being obliterated and what have you, uh, if that becomes the problem, then unfortunately, in my personal opinion, that has to fall back to the proponents, World Energy, GH2, not me. Well, I, I'm glad you said uh, the, the, the feds will have, will have money in it. Well, they've got money set aside for these types of projects. It's all in their alternative transition type of documentation that, that's out there. Well, be it private or government, governments don't do it well in estimates and so on. Generally not. It's an open book, but be it private or not, these these things uh, generally go way o- over over budget because there's no way to foresee la- labor issues and other stuff that crops up. But anyway, uh, uh, as far as the final product, from what I can see, it's going to be a very costly by, by the time we ship that over. And I go back to the question again. If this is uh, such a good project, and uh, why isn't it being done nearer to the German uh, country, as in the Scandinavian countries? I, d- I haven't really seen an answer for that yet. Well, the who, who can answer that, though? <laughs> you know, I don't think Risley can answer it. I don't think the Prime Minister can answer it. I'm not so sure that anyone but companies in the energy business and or the German Chancellor can answer that, nor do I know if they kicked any of those Scandinavian tires. No, no earthly idea. I can't foresee where we get an answer domestically to that question. No, uh, but but it just causes a little bit of doubt there that uh, these countries are obviously into into energy. Uh, this Finland, the sand battery. I ask you to check that. I don't know if you had a chance. To I did. I found scant information. I have to be honest. But well, it started in 2014. But anyway, it's 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 being developed as my information. But anyway, th- th- these countries see opportunities, uh, and yet we're looking at something across the ocean. When you're talking about going across the Baltic Sea there, but... Uh yeah, who's we? I choose not to say we on this one because I have nothing to do with it. And I don't want anything to do with it. If there's a business case to be made and the deep pockets of World Energy GH2 and end consumers in Germany can come up with a deal, that's on them. If it's expensive, which it is, I mean, if you just look at the cost, uh, do emissions comparison, cost comparison between blue, gray, and green hydrogen, green is really expensive. And there's a loss in the amount of energy just based on transportation. So if they come up with a formula that doesn't work for either side. I'm going to stop saying we on that one because I don't want anything to do with it. It might be great. If it works, works, and it creates jobs on the West Coast, that's fantastic. Bring it on. But I'm not part of it, and I don't think I want anything to do with it. If it works out for the businesses involved, bravo. Good for them. Nothing wrong with profit. Nothing wrong with finding new markets. But I don't want to be involved in this. Well, I'd like to see it go ahead. I'd like to see us become leaders in in this area. But uh, there's just a few things that perhaps it's because we don't know much yet. I think that's accurate. We know what we get when we talk about mines, and we know what we get when we talk about oil. We know what we get when we talk about logging and the fishery. This brand new. So all the unknowns based on the industry in its infancy, it's hard to really know what's what. It's almost difficult to come up with uh, a list of pertinent questions that we really need answers to. I've tried a couple of times with the minister, and, I mean, he's not fully in the loop, too, because he's not in that boardroom. But, you know, whether it be John Risley's town uh not next week the week after we're going to get him well i'm going to try to get him anyway speaking at a conference and we'd love to have mr risley on to talk about some of those ins and outs what he'll be willing to share as a private business owner remains to be seen but i don't mind trying to get him on and asking him no i hope you can 
because from now to three years, that's pretty fast, and uh, to, to know so little at this stage. But anyway, we'll, I guess we'll leave it at that. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, so uh, go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go line number three. Nicole, you're on the air. Nicole on three, or you are on the air. Nicole on three is on hold. Let's go to line number one. Vic, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Good morning Thank to you. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I wish to congratulate uh, Lana Payne on her... Uh, appointment to the president of uh, the largest, I guess, private union in, probably in Canada. It, it is the largest, but she wasn't appointed. She was actually elected by the members. Oh, elected, yes, she was elected. That's correct. That's correct. Yes, I have great uh, respect and, and praise for her because I remember uh, reading her articles in uh, Telegram uh, regarding labor, etc. She's very, very knowledgeable in, in that area and very well well respected. I had the pleasure of probably speaking to her once, probably three or four years ago, when she was, uh, I think she was Federation of Labor. I believe she was Secretary of Federation of Labor, was she not? Yeah, uh, she may indeed have been the president of the Secretary of the uh, Federation of Labor at one point. I mean, between Mary Shortland and her, Reg Anstey, I can't remember who fits in where, but yeah, anyway. Yes, I think it's wonderful uh, to have a a person such as uh, Lana in that position. The other uh, thing I'd like to mention is, uh, of course, I guess uh, I was shocked at the harassment of our uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, a few days, I think last week there, or last weekend. That was over the weekend. Unfortunately, I was not shocked. Uh, yes. I, uh, so I guess I'm just wondering now. I guess uh, I'm, I know uh, I think public life is becoming probably a bit more dangerous, but uh, in terms of uh, I think well, uh, people are seem more angry than they used to be. Uh, my, I guess my question is, uh, I don't see any, there was no comments from the male, her male, the, our male poli- politicians. You know, I'm hoping that... Yeah, sure, there was. Um, pardon? Absolutely, there were tons of them. Well, was there some? I didn't, yes, I didn't plenty. Many. Yeah, people, I mean, it's a couple of things. Uh, unfortunately, I am not shocked. Now, the RCMP say they're investigating. I don't know what constitutes a crime inside of it. People justifying it and playing the whatabout game I find to be completely unhelpful. But, yeah, lots of male politicians have chimed in well, right across well, the country. Well, well, and yeah, Mr. Well. Poliev, who uh, was asked to comment on it, he did condemn it, but then he very quickly went on to make it about how he's faced uh, some taunts and stuff on Twitter. So th- the more we try to justify it because we lean towards one party or another, it just becomes moronic to me. Someone sent me a note. Actually, I've got probably a, a half dozen that say virtually the same thing. Is, you know, what happens if you think the government ruined your life and you lost your job and you lost your trip to Florida and you... Uh, lost your business and all these things. Yeah, okay, for starters, most of that's not true. Secondly, good God, you know, this is all about this guy who cursed his head off at the the deputy prime minister. He didn't fall into any of those cracks. He goes on and on about the World Economic Forum, and he's driving a $75,000 truck, has a home and a cottage. So it's just that he hates the government, and he hates Christian Freeland. Not that he's been hard done by by anything. So I just don't really know why we're justifying it. If you're throwing rocks at the prime minister, yelling at Christian Freeland, putting an egg on Maxine Bernier's head, uh, throwing harsh criticisms, curses, taunts at Pierre Polyev or Jean Charest or Leslie Lewis or Jugmeet Singh, it's not good. I don't know why we're justifying these things. 
things. It's ridiculous. Uh, uh, well, yes, I agree with you. The other point is, I thought, where is our laws pertaining to uh, uh, this abuse? Uh, you know, are, should we not have more stringent laws pertaining to it? But what laws, right? Like, I mean, that's where the tricky part comes. Cursing at someone and yelling at someone, does it constitute criminal harassment? I don't know. I'm not a law enforcement officer. I don't know the laws carefully enough to say one way or the other. But being mean doesn't necessarily mean you end up in the court. So I don't know what we do here, but what I think is probably a good start is putting some security around people. Remember the story a couple of months ago is they were getting panic buttons or whatever. All the politicians, because of the threats, lobbied, uh, lobbed at them. So let's just put some security around them. Yes, right? I, I mean, if that's what it takes, let's do it. Yes, I thought there would be more security around uh, our politicians. Uh, certainly since we had a few years ago there, I think they had this politician murder there in, in England. Yeah, and I, there's been examples in the United States. An example, uh, an example. I think we should have more uh, security around our politics, actually. Also, uh, our, my, your previous caller, Charlie, talking about the, uh, this uh, hydro uh, deal in Stephenville, I guess, we, uh, I think he was talking about, uh, I guess, the different uh, escalation in the cost of what have you, etc. But I guess uh, all we'd have to keep in mind, I, I guess, if they do... Uh, I'm, I'm sort of on, on the fence on this. Uh, uh, I don't know enough about the, the, uh, the whole thing to make any comment, but I'm assuming if they're going to negotiate a, a deal, uh, they look at, uh, I guess, inflation, the cost of uh, uh, of the uh, whatever whatever they're going to be leasing or giving out, uh, the cost that's going to produce in that. So have to look so at I would stuff. imagine you, you, you'd have to have a very... Uh, I guess, uh, flexible uh, agreement in terms of uh, benefits and royalties, wouldn't you? Well, I don't even know where the royalties come, so I guess it's no. uh, directly related to yeah. water. Right. I don't know how you get a royalty right. out of the wind. But, uh, but now, uh, I, remember, I remember a few years ago, um, there was, a, a, I think, a company uh, discussing uh, uh, windmills on, on water, I think, in Bay of Islands area, Cornerbrook area. That was, I think, three or four years ago. Yeah, there's been lots of proposals that have been rejected. Trapassi Baron, 700 megawatts. There's been all kinds of uh, right. proposals well, that have come and gone. At the moment, yes, I have to read up and see what it's all about, but uh, I'm on sort of on the fence, but I'm just listening. And I thank you again for having the, uh, you had the Minister for uh, of Energy on there, Honorable um, uh, Parsons there recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very helpful. And, and that's, uh, I thank you for that because I think it may, gives, uh, at least gives people some, uh, um, uh, view that, or some uh, uh, hope that uh, things are not going to be just given away, you know? Yeah, we're going to really make every effort to have Mr. Risley himself yeah. on. I think that would be yeah. really helpful to get yeah. some thoughts and perspective coming from the proponents. Uh, it's one thing for the government to chime in, and they should, and they have to, but right. we're really going to try to get Mr. Risley. I uh, appreciate yeah. the time, Vic. And I thank you for you doing a great job, Patty. Thank you very much. You take good care. Thanks a lot. All right, bye-bye. Will I get Nicole here before the break? Okay, let's try again. Line three. Nicole, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, I'd like to call in about my mother, Irene Hutchins, that got incarcerated last Wednesday for the stabbing at Atlantic Place. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to address the way she's being treated while she's being held in custody. Okay. Um, my mother has says she has a lot of physical damage from when she did get arrested. Um, 
by the police. She says that she thinks she has internal bleeding, that she's been um, peeing blood, and there's blood in her urine. And the most she can get to see is um, a nurse practitioner, which she feels is not an accurate doctor to be able to feel the burning and all the bruising she has. Like She's really worried she has severe damage done. Yes, I mean, you were telling me this when you called, uh, I guess it was last week at this point. You know, if you need medical attention, regardless of what you've been accused of, regardless of what you've been arrested for, this should be one of the key offerings, and no one should be uh, ignored when they think they need some medical treatment. I don't know how and why that happened. So is she in the lockup downtown? She's not, like, she hasn't uh, been sent no, anywhere else. She is sent to Clarenville She is now. in Clarenville, okay. She uh, went out, but um, my sister called in last week, Natasha, which was on air last week. She, um, my mother is in like a, a different psychosis. Like sometimes she thinks that I am two or three different people, that she's two or three different people. Like, and the, and the staff and the corrections officers are calling her Looney Tunes and psycho and crazy. Like, she doesn't matter. Like, she's just a stigma that, you know, she's just another one of those nut jobs that needs to, like, be locked away and forgot about. But what they don't understand is that, you know, my mother does have family and does have support and does have people that's going to speak out. And the way that you treat person even though your opinion on them, you know, it can really affect their day-to-day living. Of course it can. Uh, are you able to see your mom? Um, I have an appointment tomorrow to go to Clarenville, so I'm going to leave here and drive out. Uh, in the meantime, I did contact the Department of Justice Inquiry Um the citizens representative and Tom Osborne's office myself because what I don't understand is if you're so mentally ill why would you be transferred to Clarenville and not to Waterford Hospital like she really needs to be hospitalized she's still going to be punished for her crimes I'm not trying to dismiss that but I feel like she's where it was a cop she did stab that She's not being treated fairly if she was just, you know, to attack or have stabbed a regular John walking up the road. You know what I mean? You you might be right. I don't know how that factors into the minds of the correctional officers or anybody else, but... You know, they they do have a, a trend to band together when one of their own has been on the receiving end of whatever it is, and in this case it's a stabbing at Atlantic Place. Um, uh, look, safe travels, and I hope your mother gets whatever attention she needs. And the comment about should be transferred to the Waterford Hospital, the fact of the matter is the numbers of beds in a secure wing at the Waterford Hospital are severely limited and if you look around the inmate population right from Labrador through Stephenville, Bishop's Falls, Her Majesty's Penitentiary, Clarenville all included the people who really do belong in a setting that is much more conducive to their mental well-being is not there. We have so many people behind bars in one one prison or another that absolutely belong somewhere else being treated as opposed to incarcerated the way they are. I mean everyone knows it to be true What's going to change? I don't know. Even when we build new penitentiaries, like the one that they're clearing ground for in the White Hills, unless we change the way we 
triage people and where's the most appropriate place for them to spend their sentence and yes crime requires some punishment rehabilitation but attention to your addictions or your mental health at the same time and we just don't do enough of that in criminal justice uh, nicole safe travels i hope you're all doing okay Thank you, Patty. My biggest uh, concern is I sit by the phone waiting to get a call that she, because she said her goodbye. She told me she's leaving in a body bag. Like, I'm waiting for the call that she done something to hurt herself or made away with herself. And oh, I no. express my my concerns. And uh, this is just going to be another story about someone who has made away with themselves out there. And I just want, you know, the public and everyone to know that I ain't going to let this go, that I'm going to stand up for my mother and follow every court appearance and her whole journey the whole way through take good care of yourself i wish you well nicole thank you bye-bye take care bye-bye oh boy let's uh let's take a break don't go away join us for on target one hour in which linda swain examines topics that mean the most to you on target weekday afternoons at one on your vocm uh, welcome back to the show let's go to line number one neil you're on the air hey patty how are you okay this morning how you doing Oh, not bad. Patty, on the Long Harbor Access Road, uh, about a kilometer outside the community, there's a second-year moose in the ditch with legs broken, uh, obviously broken. Uh, So I'm on the side of the road waiting for wildlife and RCMP, but I really would like to ask the driving public if they could slow down because this little guy gets spooked and tries to come up on the road, and there's going to be a second accident here if people don't slow down. So it's a kilometer outside the community in the ditch, I guess, heading in towards Long Harbor. That's a real terrible sight. I've seen it in the past myself, Neil, and you're right. Between the fear and so easily spooked and jittery, that that animal might try to take one more surge up onto the road. So please, if you're in that region today, slow down because there's an accident waiting to happen. Let's avoid it at all costs. Absolutely, Patty. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. I appreciate the heads up, Neil. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, well, that's a sad scene, I would say. Okay, let's go line number two. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, Patty, a uh, couple things this morning. Uh, one is the uh, uh, there's a, we, it seems we're getting a new federal DFO minister. There's been a cabinet shuffle, and it seems like Minister Murray is is being shuffled. And uh, I, I think it's a good thing because uh, from our responses about the Newfoundland Labrador's salmon situation, fishery situation, she didn't seem all that confident in what she was saying, especially when uh, we were talking about the fishery guardians. Well, I mean, and a variety of issues, you know, uh, leave the fish in the water, focus on vegetation. There's a kind of th- a bunch of stuff that felt really tone deaf. But where are you hearing that? Because the only reference to a specific minister that I've heard is Philomena Tassi. She's the Minister of Public Services and Procurement looks like she's stepping down because of what she's calling family matters but were you hearing any moves on Joyce Murray? Uh, I, I apologize Patty I got ahead of myself uh, there was no there was, wasn't about Minister Murray herself just that there was a cabinet shuffle and I'm sorry what I meant to say was that there was, we hope that we get a new fisheries minister oh. who is better able to deal with these uh, situations and have a better grasp and handle on the situation and is able and willing and wanting to address this issue and here we are Petty we've been talking all summer we've been talking last year and here we are now coming up on Labor Day weekend which after this weekend the salmon fishing recreational salmon fishing season is closed and the guardians are going to be sent home 
with not a thing, you know, it's like talking to deaf ears. Yeah, it's the seventh uh, on the island, 15th Labrador, and we all know full well there's weeks of concern left in the season. So, I mean, I've talked with you about this, Paul White about this, and others. Uh, haven't had a chance. The one time I was away, I think Joyce Murray was on the show yeah, when I was on holidays, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. All I kept saying is I wish Taddy was there. <laughs> Nothing against your colleagues. Yeah, I don't know what went on that day. I didn't uh, hear any of it. But I've been really anxious to get some time with the minister. So, well, we'll see what happens today. If she's shuffled out, then, of course, we play the same old game. Is that she gets shuffled out potentially, or whatever minister gets shuffled out. Then the next minister gets that bit of grace period while they're still being uh, read into what's happening. And then it's hard for them to answer questions. And then we wait and we wait and we wait. And by the time we get a chance with them they're shuffled out so same old same old game and just like starting all over again sometimes it is you know it, it's it's a it's a real shame and patty it will be different if i was in if i was calling you balling and blaring and looking for more tags Balling and blaring, looking for more that I feel self-entitled. But what are we doing, Patty? We are legitimate, law-abiding citizens who are anglers, love the sport, got the best reason in the world for wanting to push forward this, and it's our grandkids. Yeah, I get it. I, I I don't understand the rationale behind the Guardians program. There's fewer forced to do more, cover a bigger geographical area. They've had their cost coverage for, say, kilometers and stuff, either capped or reduced. So I don't know. Th actually, this is a question some of them posed yesterday. I don't know the answer to it. What are the guardians and or wildlife officers using when it comes to technology? Is it about being boots on the shore, walking the rivers, or are they also incorporating drones? Do you happen to know? Because you can cover a lot of territory when you're using drones, for instance. Patty, I'm not sure about the drones. I can't comment on it. As I said before, uh, I'm on the board of directors with SANE now, Salmon Earth Association in Eastern Newfoundland. And uh, that's something that came up, but uh, just in, in talk. And I don't think that the government ha has it. I'm sure they do and probably use it for uh, surveillance, but not for, you know, everyday. And it's kind of hard to use it for everyday use, too, though, I suppose, right? But I suppose, you know, but you know. we've got people out there doing all kinds of work regarding environmental protections, what have you, using drones. Because you can cover a lot of ground to discover what kind of flora, fauna is flourishing in one region or another, or how many animals we see when we do head counts. I'm just wondering if the guardians and or the wildlife officers themselves are also trying to stretch themselves further afield by using something like a drone. And if you don't know the answer, that's fine, because I don't know the answer either, but I'm going to see if I can find it yes and patty i don't know the answer to it but it is an excellent suggestion and it, it will be technology that could be used and would broaden the uh would broaden it but uh you know that that's that's up to the powers to be and the powers to be don't seem to want to do anything and think, seem to want to breathe ahead and think that everything is just quite okay here in newfoundland and labrador and we're saying it's not and who are we we are the boots on the ground we are the ones that are out observing everything and nothing against the guardians the, the inland for, uh, fishers wildlife the dfo enforcement they just have their hands tied with so many different things with moose calls and you know hunting season coming up the birds the atvs uh, they had to go over to the labrador quebec water to, for, to monitor covid and yeah. the rivers are being left wide open yeah and i don't know what it's going to take patty i don't know 
Yeah, I kind of forgot about that. The wildlife officers were doing COVID border checkpoint stuff, checklist stuff, which is exactly what they're not hired to do. Uh, Barry, I appreciate the time. I think you want to make a quick comment on Sunday hunting before I go? Yes, Teddy. Uh, uh, I heard you talk about it the other day, and, uh, you know, uh, Sunday hunting was a... uh, the movement started back in the 80s. I attended meetings with the uh, late Gordon Wright, who initiated the whole thing. And then we got the Sunday hunting, and then some year, quite a long time years later, and it started off for just a three three week period, I believe, memory serves. And then it got a little longer. Now the past while it's been opened the first Sunday in October for the rest of the hunting season. This year, it opened uh, this past weekend for bow hunting, and it's going to continue right on through to four rifle season for big game, uh, small game, uh, etc. And uh, we uh, were pleased with the decision because uh, you know it gives us more opportunity to be out there and more opportunity to be successful in harvesting in our game. Uh, but where did it come from? I know I've mentioned it a couple of times in passing in a couple of different meetings I've had with the different ministers, but I haven't really heard of a a big push for it. And all of a sudden, here we are. And it's kind of like similar. And I'm not being critical, Patty. It's kind of similar to the Cormorant uh, uh, issue. Where did that license come from? There wasn't a long lobby. What I'd like to say to the government, to the minister, is that if these, these two issues came about practically overnight. Yeah, now so the aquaculture, okay, the aquaculture crowd said they had nothing to do with it, and you can, people could take that or leave that, and on this front, so are you, are you suggesting maybe there's some successful lobbying coming from, like, outfitters, or what do you think is behind it? Because we were quick to say aquaculture drove the cormorant uh, call. What do you think is behind this? If I didn't hear anything about it until it was announced either. Yeah, I don't think it's the outfitters, Patty, because uh, for because on Sundays it's a changeover days. I didn't think so either. I was just wondering what you thought was going on or what was behind it. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know, Patty. I can't figure it out. But I, what I will say though is that with these two separate issues, cormorants and Sunday hunting, which uh, the, the decisions pretty well came overnight, I would say to the government. Why is it taking six and seven years of lobbying to get other things instituted when this can happen overnight? And I, look, I know there's legal stuff that goes on with changes and everything else, but my God, why, why did it take uh, why did it take six, seven years for the for the hunting age? Why did it take twelve years for uh, sharing the harvest, etc.? Fair questions. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thanks a lot. Uh, Patty, uh, on that Sunday hunting thing, I just like to make people aware that there, are, you know, there, there's more non-hunters than there are hunters. Uh, but the non-hunters have to do their part too, and doing their part will be wearing some kind of brighter blaze orange clothing when they're out berry picking or out in out in the countryside this time of the year. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, Barry. See ya. Let's uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just very quickly uh, regarding the River Guardians, whether or not they're utilizing drone drone technology. No, they're not. This comes from a River Guardian. Appreciate the info, Dennis. Let's go to line number four. Mike, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, I'm calling about the closure of the Northern Cod Fishery. Okay. Closed down on, I think it was the 18th of August. Yeah, they cut the quota quick. Yeah, and uh, it closed down until uh, the 11th of September. Mm-hmm. And Three nine colonists. I'm here in Pity Harbour. We have a gazette line in Pity Harbour. There's no channel, no getting it in our waters. We're basically hooking line fishery, right? Okay. And we're closed down because of the overruns in the Gillnet fishery. That's what it is, the Gillnet fishery. 
over on the quotas big time. Now we're closed. I've talked to dozens of people about it, and we're closed down because of them. Now if they got the fish that we were should be catching, they already got a cut in our back pocket. Yeah, so how do you break out who and how people catch whatever caught in this case? Because if the quota, the total allowable catch is what it is, how do you break out when you should be allowed to go out versus someone who uses gear like a gillnet, for instance? So just curious how you, you factor those things in. Yeah, okay, we had, starting out, we had 3,850 pounds, I think this number, to catch per week. Okay. You know, and then until it changed after that. Now, in that week, okay, we're out, we're out hooking line, we can get our 3,800 pounds, and two fellas started, some fellas stopped here two or three days after they, they finished up say, Wednesday or Thursday, and they had to call the car. Because they can go pretty close with the open line. But in a, in a gill net, they're, they're allowed six nets. So if they put out, they're getting 200 pounds per net. So you have six nets, it's 1,200 pounds. So it'll give you three days, the first three days of fishing, you got 3,600 pounds landed. Now you got 200 pounds left in the water to catch. So, why would you leave out your full six nets to get 200 pounds, which is going on? Now they got, they got the 3,800 pounds plus they got 1,000 pounds extra. I mean, that's been going on and on and on. And then every 1,000 pounds he gets extra, and, and I'm, I'm being very considerate in what I'm saying. I think you are. I was going to say that 1,000 pounds is more likely 3,000. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's big time. I mean, I've seen it happen here uh, three or four years ago. But all that's going on the last number of years. And nobody is doing nothing about it. You know, nobody's getting charged, nobody's doing nothing. And all I can hear from fishers is that, well, boy, it's hard to manage, hard to manage. And I told them a couple of times this year, meantime, I said, let me go out and sit down for a half hour now with you people. I said, no, I can fix this very quick. Because I said, number one, when the, when the fellow that needs 200 pounds and he got 1,000 pounds or just use 1,000 pounds, well, next week he should only have 2,800 to get, right? Instead of 3,800, take out a thousand pounds, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that, but that's not happening. They're fishing at will, there's no stop. I said to the girl last week, I said, This is a free fish. She's enormous turn. I said, Oh, he said, This honey, I said, they're out fish at will. Now, how can 80% of the quarter, it's pretty high from the numbers I'm hearing, it can't, and we don't, we don't have ours, but some less got it. Now, they don't care if it opens or closes again. Then I said, so if that's hard to manage on a weekly basis, they don't do that. So if you're totally allowed to catch what what's marked on your license, if that comes out to be say for everybody cut the right amount you should catch, that means you would have forty thousand pounds, just a rough figure, forty thousand pounds at the end of the year. Now I said in my corn, and instead of having forty thousand, he got fifty or sixty thousand pounds at the end of the year. That's where you, you can nail this you see, subject to a fine, and that they come out of course another year. I said it's, a fi- it's easy to fix, very easy. Well, especially when, I mean, and again, I'm not a professional fish harvester, but the boys have a good understanding of what the catch rates are. So if you had landed X number of pounds with X number of nets and you know full well you're close on your individual quota, you understood the catch rate in the first time out, so you'd have a very good idea how many nets you need to set to catch the rest of your actual quota as opposed to put the same number of nets out in the same number spot and pretending that you're not going to get a similar catch rate. Exactly. I mean, that's what's happening. Everybody knows, like, they didn't want me there last year, everyone's on saying, it's easy. I said, yes, it's easy for the hook and line. We can go within within, within 100 pounds, no, no sweat. I said, but we're doing that, but it's not working to get in that. But it can go in. Instead of, you know, six nets, you need 200 pounds, leave out a net. 
and get his 200 pounds, he's already, or then if not the following week, fish a thousand pounds less for whatever he caught over. Yeah, now the argument you'll make is with how costly it is to steam out that as opposed to hoping that just the one net is enough to catch the remainder of your IQ, that if I put out a couple extra to make sure I get it to save myself some money when I go out to retrieve my nets, that's an argument that you'll hear on the other side. But they also, at the exact same time, they understood the catch right the first time. Yeah, exactly. I'll hear that argument too, like you're saying. But they know instead of leaving out your six, well, leave out two nets, you're still going to have over. And it, but at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, like we should have come out of this, like there's not a call, there's not a, every time he says it's not this, not I said all I know, I have thirty-eight hundred fifty pounds on, on my piece of paper. If all hands went by the rules, like you should go there, all hands would get to thirty-eight hundred fifty pounds, and this this wouldn't be closed down at all. We still be catching fish. Yeah, the quota now, came in really quick. That much I know for sure. Yeah, you I mean the. the, the, the there's nothing that's happening. Like I said, uh, the girl, I said, if I driving up the highway to 130 and the police house one, he said, Mr. Horn, you better slow down. That's all right. Let me go. On the way home, I'm doing it just fast. And they're sort of going to tell me, i got to slow down. If they don't penalize me, I'm not going to slow down. I'm going to go faster. That's how it all plays out. Uh, Mike, I'm off to the news. I appreciate the time this morning, sir. Good yeah, luck out uh, there. I, I just hope, because I'm not hearing much... Uh, any action? I don't hear nothing. I don't know if you're not open line. I don't. I don't hear it every day, right? Well, we've had some conversations about uh, Northern Cod this year. Yeah, some of the discrepancies in three PS and otherwise. So yes, we absolutely have. But I'm glad you made time for the show this morning, Mike. All right. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to the top of the board. Line number one, Paul, you're on the air. Uh, Patty, hello. How are you? Patty, I, I just called in this morning because I wanted to tell you about something I witnessed last night. Uh, I won't say what street I'm on, but uh, around 2 o'clock this morning, I looked out the window across the street there and there were couple there and at first I thought they were dancing Patty uh, and kissing on their porch the front porch light was lit on I could see that much but I thought something was wrong there because she would turn one way and he would go the same way she would turn the other way so I said there's something going on there so what I did I got my binoculars and zoomed in on him and what he was doing he was preventing her from getting back in the house okay and he was yelling at her cursing her he was pushing her he got to the point where he grabbed her by the head both hands, on her, one on her chin, one in the back, and started to shake her. Oh, my. So I said, enough of that. I went and phoned the police. They took all the information. Ten minutes later, they came in. But before they came in, uh, he went back in the house before they came, and she went out in the car for about ten minutes, and then she got out of the car and went back in in the house. And I said, my God, what are you doing? Go back in the house. She's going to hurt you. And I, was, I, I told the police, I said, I'm afraid for her safety, because he was literally... Shaking her, Patty, and yelling at her. He, he was after drinking. See, I don't know these people, but uh, but she managed to come out of the house uh, with one load of stuff and put it in the car. Then she went back in again, and then she came up with some. And then she went a third time, and then sure enough, he came out after her and did the same thing right there behind the car. Grabbed her by the head and shook her and cursed at her, and she never screamed or anything. It was almost like she took it, but she was trying to get away from him. I mean, I felt like going out there and doing something myself. Well, I was kind of nervous because I don't like seeing people fighting. I, I, you know, like, but, you know, you don't want to see that kind of thing. Especially, you know, uh, i got to be careful what I say, Patty. But, uh, 
But anyway, finally the cops came. Uh, but before the cops came, she left for about maybe five minutes. I said, oh, God, she's gone now. They're not going to know what's going on. But she came back. And when just as she came back, the cops finally came in. I mean, God love them. They're busy, I know. Two cop cars out there. And uh, the one went in the house and spoke to Buddy, one cop, and the female officer stayed out with the lady. Took all the information. Buddy wasn't arrested. Why, I don't know. Maybe he denied doing anything. Maybe she didn't want to press charges. Um, but anyway, to make a longer, longer story short, there was still stuff on the porch. So the cop helped her put some of the stuff towards her car, and she put it in the car. And the female officer was in one of those blazers. She went up the road, and the lady followed her, and they went off. And then the other officer stayed with the man. And then when the other officer eventually came back, the, both of the cops left. The buddy just went on inside, and a few minutes later, he was out on his phone. And guaranteed, you know what he was doing, don't you? Call oh, honey, her. baby, I'm sorry. It won't happen again. And you know what happened this morning, Patty? About a half an hour ago, she comes up and she picks him up on the side of the road here. I saw him walking down the road, and I thought, oh, gee, there goes that fella. I said, I know what he's like. I know what kind of person he is. And sure enough, she pulls up on the side of the road. He gets in, and now they're gone off. Trying to, I guess he's trying to make up with her, see? I suppose. If it happens the first time, I'm sure that's probably not the first time it happened, Patty. No, and it has women always say, oh, I love him, you know, and I don't know what else to do. I because don't think it's, it's his wife, it's probably his girlfriend, but it just ticks you off, right? It might, but it's complicated. Get away. Yeah, it, uh, for me... Uh, I think that I've heard so many stories that have different roots as to how, why, who's involved, money, housing, jobs, pets, kids. So I hesitate to say, you know, why is she doing what she's doing? Because it's complicated. And who knows what is actually the the basis or the what the relationship is like. Now, of course, any bit of violence is completely unacceptable. He should be dealt with in the harshest terms. But when we don't focus on him but we focus on her, I think we kind of leave behind just how bloody complicated it is for some women to get out of these abusive relationships. So I don't know what's going on. I think you did the right thing by calling the police. I'll say that much. But you did say one thing interesting, Paul, that I'd like to pick up on. You said you have to be careful what you say. What did you mean by that? Careful oh, about what? About my language, Patty. Oh, I see your language because I was kind of <laughs> confused about what you meant by that. No, but I mean, you see something like I mean, I don't see that's not something you see every day. Uh, grabbing a hold of a woman and shaking her like that and I mean, he could have, if I hadn't called the police, I don't know what's wrong with the other people on the street, but but God knows what could have, because there's stairs leading up to the, to the front door, and they were actually fighting by the door, and I was afraid he was going to push her down the stairs or something. Yeah. And that could have easily happened. That's what I told the officer. I was afraid for her safety, right? But, I mean, whatever happened, I mean, the fact that he did what he did, to me, he should have been gone. They should have took care of him, right? Maybe she didn't want to press charges. See, it could be, right? It's hard now, to say. But, but, Patty, am I right in saying down in the States, some places, if the officers can actually press charges, even if the person doesn't want to? I don't know. There are some cases where you don't need a complaint, where charges can be, pre- be laid. That's absolutely sure. Uh, on domestic violence, I can't answer that because I really don't know the answer. But, here, look, I mean, something similar. This is a long time ago. I'm going to say 15 years ago. We were walking down Water Street. We're going from one band to another band. And we saw a guy getting rough with the girl in the doorway of one of the businesses on Water Street. My buddy, 
who <laughs> never fails. He's not afraid of it. He said, what are you doing? Tried to, you know, and he was going to physically go after Buddy. And he thought he was doing the right thing until the woman intervened and said, please don't touch him. Don't touch him. Don't touch him. He thought he was saving her. The first person to react wasn't Buddy because he looked kind of afraid because my Buddy was a big Amagon and he wasn't. Buddy looked afraid. The girl jumped to his, to his aid and we saw him shaking her, bash her up against the wall. So it's just so weird and complicated and complex that who knows what we're seeing and who knows what's going on. I mean, it's very similar to what you described. She was the one who came to his defense when my Buddy went to go in and haul Buddy offer. If, I was really shocked. Like, I didn't even know what to make of it. But, so but I simply it, said it, to him, it, you know, should we call the police? And she was like, no, 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 no. And well, eventually we did anyway. So, But is it fair to say that if the police had to been called, that's why she maybe she was afraid that that would make him even worse? Maybe. We see it all the time. If someone gets charged, they make an appearance in court, there's a order of protection offered. Next thing you know, the domestic violence escalates because how dare you call the police on me? That's a worry that a lot of women would have. But they have places to go, don't they, Patty? And they town? have some, but again, like what if it was all about their worry was the children or money or pets or like who knows what's important to different people at different times in their life and ending up in the shelter might not feel like the most attractive option to some people so you know all of these things become very easy for me and you to say but much different if living as a lived circumstance if I'm the person who's being abused and we know women they suffer the lion's share of domestic violence but men are on the receiving end too but looking for better trying to get away becomes a really a much more difficult thing it's as they always say it's easier said than done yeah it's just not something you see every day thank no you God. don't but it's I very upsetting it's, yeah well i was kind of shaking myself because i didn't expect it you know but the first like i live right across the street from where they're too and the first time i ever saw him doing that but i'm sure now she's gone off with him this morning it's all oh, baby i'm sorry it won't happen again and and you know as well as i do it will happen again if it happened, especially if he was drinking, and he was, because there was beer cans out on the lawn. Okay. It's not the first time, Patty. I'm, I'm not, we're not idiots, right? I mean, put two and two together, right? Oh, sure. It'll I mean, happen again. And what'll happen then? Maybe he'll he'll break her neck or break her leg or break her back or That's worse. always the worry. And then what's going to happen? That's Who do you blame the then? Is it her fault then because she went back with him? No, it's his fault. It's always his fault. As it was last night. Yeah, it's, well, al- it's always the it, it's always so. the aggressive person's fault. It's never the person on the receiving end's fault. Because uh, when we look at it like that, you know, it's uh, not just to say you know the the sweeping uh, charge of uh, victim blaming, but regardless of what she does and picks him up or goes back to the home tonight or what have you, if he lashes out physically, emotionally, mentally at her, it's his fault. I mean, and yet, and yet she didn't. She wasn't on the phone to police on him. She never even screamed or anything, which is ironic to me, right? Well, it's because we're not her. Well, I can't go inside her mind. That's that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. We don't know what's going on in her world enough to say that she should do this or she should do that. What we need to lean on is that he should not do what he did. I mean, that's kind of the end of the the discussion surrounding these very emotional, very difficult topics. Beer or no beer. Regardless. There's no justification to be physically or emotionally or mentally lashing out at people in your world, especially repeatedly. That's what he was doing. Literally grabbing her by the head, one hand on her chin, one on her head, just shaking the woman. I was afraid he's going to push her over the stairs. I appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Hopefully you don't see it again. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. It's... It's just hard to say that the person on the receiving end, and we know 
the majority of these instances is the women being battered. It does happen to men. That's true. And there is no shelter for men. I'll put that out there because someone always mentions that to me. But the person that's being hit or taunted, it's hard to blame them. It's the person doing it to them. Because if we don't focus there, then we're kind of losing sight of what's going on. We're looking for a reason to justify that type of behavior, which is probably a really bad idea. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about emergency rooms. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three, Cecil, you're on the air. Uh, Eddie, I lost my sunglass, my regular prescription glasses on a Remax parking lot Sunday during the black case. They're either there or I lost them at the uh, CVS Long Pond Manuals, uh, Tim Hortons. What's the what's a Remax parking lot like? The Remax Center on Bonaventure Avenue? No, 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 no. Tops, uh, tops, uh, uh, Black Marsh Road. So it's a REMAX office, a real estate office. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't know what we were talking about. Black Marsh Road. At the corner of Black Marshall and Tops Road, or the Tim Hortons in Long Pond Manuals on the parking lot. Fair in enough. Black case. If you found the specs in the black case, they're Cecil's, and surely people who find sunglasses, or pardon me, anybody's prescription no, glasses. Regular glasses. Yeah, prescription glasses, yeah. Um, did you go to either of the businesses, see if someone just dropped them off? I did all that. Yeah. So, well, hopefully you get them back. I want my number. Sure, fire away. Two seven two five two seven two seven seven two seven one. That's a good one. Seven two seven seven two seven one. Yeah. Interesting number. Yeah, I grew up Thanks with a kid. His number was seven two 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 seven two two. All right, there you go, no, Cecil. Hopefully, get him. Yes. Cecil, seven, I don't know if there's. I don't know if we have a, a, a communication issue going. I said uh, I knew someone with a very similar number. I have your number. If someone calls with the glasses, we'll make sure you get reconnected. How's that? Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Appreciate All the best, Cecil. Uh, okay, let's keep going. Line number two. Lorraine, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Uh, yes, I'm calling about the emergency rooms at the hospitals. Okay. I went over Tuesday because I had pains in my left arm, and my arm was going numb, and I'm a diabetic. And I went over there a little after 3 o'clock, and... 10.30 that night, I had to leave because I never got signed by a doctor. Yeah, hopefully the radio turned up in the back doesn't shag you up. But anyway, there's someone sent to me a note, a uh, regular listener to the program, spent 17 hours at the emergency room at St. Clair's the other day. 17 hours. Yeah, and it's unreal. Yes, it and, is. And when we went in to go into the emergency, the main doors that you go in through, like the double doors where the emergency part is, there were people standing up and lied on each side of the hall. And when we left that night, there were people out on that sa- on both sides of the hall, lied down to sleep. And I mean, that's outrageous. Come on. It is. Uh, it's always a terrible scene when we know the people waiting to get admitted around a gurney in a hallway or and people I'm, are sleeping. No, they were all on the floor. Yeah, okay. That's what I was just going to say. Okay, Lorraine. Understood. I mean, it's outrageous. That's the first time I've been over. I called 811 that day, and they told me to go over and get checked out right away. And, I mean, that was unreal. I had to leave. I didn't get checked on or anything else. 
It's a long way to get no help or even get a chance to see anybody. I understand that for sure. And I mean, there was people who came in, they talked to a nurse or whatever, a few minutes after they were in, and we were still there waiting to get in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's outrageous. Well, you're not going to get anyone to argue with that. It is outrageous. And, you know, then the conversation becomes a bit more tricky when we factor in different things. Like, there was, I remember a call, I can't remember when it was, but the concern was that the person saw some senior citizens that were waiting there much longer than others who were being called in. And one woman in obvious pain, and she was trying to lie down across a couple of chairs, she wasn't getting called in as quick as some others who were obviously much younger and able to manage whatever pain they were experiencing when of course if we make the priority based on things like age then we probably end up making some mistakes because the triage nurse will understand who really needs to come in sooner than somebody else but it does make me it does make my heart ache when i see like the last time i was in the emergency room I'm going to say, just pick a number, if there was 20 of us in the waiting room, 15 of them were senior citizens, and you could tell that they were hurting. They did not want to be there, and so knowing that it takes so long, and they're uncomfortable, and they're in pain, and they got nowhere to be, you know, whether to lie down or whatever, I'm thinking, man... I'm happy enough to see some of these people called in before I go in because, I mean, I had a, I was hurting, but I could see some folks that were in their 80s hurting as well. I'm thinking, oh, man, this well, is awful. Well, I'm handicapped. I had two kneecap replacements. Okay. And I, I'm using a walker to get around, but the other, night when I, the other day when I went over to the hospital, I didn't take my walker. So I couldn't get up and get around to, to the bathroom unless I had help with me. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, it was unreal. And the only thing they did was check my blood pressure and took my temperature. What was that going to do? Well, they're required. Taking your vitals is part of just filling out your chart, which can be indicative of other issues that they need to talk about. Yeah, but I was waiting for two or three hours before they, my vitals were even checked. Right. I think there's protocols about how often they do things like that or when these things happen, but there's nothing new to get your vitals checked when you go to the hospital. Oh, I know that, but, I mean, that's all they did do. I wish you had to be seen, and much quicker than the painful wait that you had, Lorraine. So how are you now? Did you have to go back to the emergency room? Were you able to get some oh, relief for I'm some help? I'm not going back to the emergency room. I was one of these people who didn't have a doctor, so I see a doctor now in at, um, in behind the post office on Camelot Road. But I, I'm, I'm in the process of waiting on them to call me back with an appointment, and I'm going back to see them. I'm not going to the emerge. Well, hopefully you have better success at the clinic. Uh, I also just got a doctor, and I, I mentioned it the other day, and I, people were mad at me that I finally was able to get a doctor, but I've been on the list for months. I haven't had a family doctor in, my God, a couple of decades anyway, and oh, I just I got one. I haven't had a family doctor either. Yeah, a lot of, look, there's 125,000 people in the province that do not have them, so I'm sure it was, you know, I was waiting. I don't have a real pressing issue, but it's nice to even be on the roster so that if I do need an appointment, I can at least call somebody, because in the past, I didn't know what to do. It's either emergency or I had no option. Yeah. Anyway, I'm off to the, new, uh, off to the news, uh, Lorraine. I hope you're doing okay. Okay, thank you, Patty. Take care of yourself. Yep. All righty, bye-bye. Uh, okay, so there's an issue we've spoken about a couple of times this week, and it's a doctor that just reached into his rope. His name is Dr. Andrew O'Keefe. He's an allergist and clinical immunologist. 
He's been working part-time with the Eastern Health Regional Health Authority since 2014. But through the jigs and the reels and the lack of access for permanent space at the Health Science, or not, I don't know if it's permanent space, but space at the Health Sciences Center and other administrative supports, Dr. O'Keefe has put in his resignation to Eastern Health. We're here from the good doctor right after the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number three is Dr. Andrew O'Keefe. He's an allergist and a clinical immunologist. Good morning, Dr. O'Keefe. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on. I don't want to mischaracterize anything that led to this final decision to resign from Eastern Health, but what I will start with is how long were the issues, before we get into the uh, the specific issues, how long were they percolating before it came to this final push-arrived-at-shove decision? So uh, really, since I came back to Newfoundland after I finished my training in 2014, um, since I returned, I'd been advocating with Eastern Health to have access to resources within their facilities where I could uh, work to the full scope of my practice. So as uh, myself and another uh, allergist returned and finished our training at the same time, we started a, a clinic in St. John's in 2014. And at that time, we were the first uh, board-certified allergist to be working in Newfoundland. So prior to that, there had been uh, doctors who saw patients with allergies, but no one who had been kind of formally trained in that, in that process. So our hope had been to uh, develop a model that's seen in other Canadian hospitals where the allergist is like any other medical specialist, like an oncologist or a cardiologist, who works um, usually within the hospital and sometimes in a community setting as well, uh, with a group of other professionals to work to the full scope of their ability and training to help meet the, uh, the needs of patients. How would your discipline be any different than other disciplines regarding hospital privileges? Because that's what it kind of speaks to me. That's what it kind of says to me. I might be misreading it, but why would your discipline have a different set of hospital privileges versus another? So in, in some ways we do, and in some ways we don't. Like uh, allergy is a specialty where most of the work that we do can be done safely in a community setting and without big supports. So we have a, a community practice in St. John's on Mount Cashel Road where we do most of, uh, where we, we are safely able to meet most of our patients' needs. But for certain patients, particularly those who have drug allergies or issues with primary immunodeficiency or some patients with food allergies, we need access to the hospital for certain types of uh, testing, be that with um, you know, access to certain types of medications that need to be prepared in the hospital. Or sometimes we administer either a food or a medication to someone uh, who may be allergic to it, and that can sometimes be dangerous, like there's a risk of them having an anaphylactic reaction. So we want to do that in a setting where if there's a high risk of that happening, uh, we're able to call in appropriate backup from places like the emergency department or the intensive care unit. You had dedicated space at the Janeway Children's Hospital, of course, for your pediatric patients. The issue with the Health Sciences Center was it physical footprint and access to space or was there a misunderstanding of what you needed and why you needed it? I think um, access to physical space was one of the big barriers there. So um, we've, you know, like I said, since 2014, I've been asking for access to uh, to space there that would be kind of on a, a permanent basis or a regular basis because, of course, um, allergy is not something that's going to go away after six months. So it doesn't work to say, okay, well, we'll give you some space on, on Friday afternoons for six months' time. We need... Uh, 
we need a, a permanent home, as it were, and it, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, seven days a week, but um, we do need some access to the hospital and to the other professionals that work there, like uh, like nurses, pharmacists, social workers, respiratory therapists, to help support the work that we do, much like any of our other specialist colleagues. Is, does that encapsulate what you refer to as the lack of the required administrative support as well? Right. So um, I didn't mention administrative supports, but of course, um, you know, administrative support is a is a huge component of any healthcare practice because we need to we need someone to help book patients, check them in, and all that sort of stuff. And and if you don't have those things, like um, as a doctor, I'm only one member of the team, and there's only so much I can do to make healthcare happen for people. So without all the other things uh, in line, um, I'm not able to do my job. What do you say to your patients? Um, so the patients that ask, you know, for for example, uh, adults with drug allergies, say I tell them that we're not able to offer that service here, um, and sometimes I'll have a, a longer or shorter explanation of that depending on how the day is. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Oh, okay. Now that you've made the decision, and of course you say it's been percolating since 2014, so it's been a long time coming. Now that you've made it, is it a sense of relief, a sense of frustration, disappointment? How do you characterize how you feel out now that you've made this final decision? I think those are all fair um, fair terms to apply to how I feel. Um, I do feel a bit relieved because it has been a struggle. If uh, if you work in a job where you're you're trying to bring 100%, but you're only getting 50% of what you need, um, that gets very frustrating. And so I, I feel a bit like I've been hitting my head against the wall trying to make this thing happen when, when no one else really felt that it was important. I do feel sad because I, I know that there are patients who need access to this service and they're, they're not getting it. Um, but... Uh, I think that for me it was important to kind of face the reality that, you know, I've been asking for this for eight years. And if I think about my my career, that I might be in practice for, for 30 years, say, we're, we're almost a third of the way through and nothing's really changed. So at what point do I, um, do I stop torturing myself with this and, and be realistic about what I'm able to do? I'm not sure if this question is on point or not, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Given the new advent of the collaborative care clinic and some of the different disciplines you need to rely on for the safe administration of some treatments or foods or drugs, can some of this maybe take place on a part-time basis in some of these clinics, whether it be other healthcare professionals, including pharmacists to mix the drugs, what have you, that are present? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of different ways that this could uh, roll out and this could work in the future. And I'm certainly open to any sort of uh, innovative types of uh, practices or, or ways that uh, we can look to to meet folks' needs. Um, but of course, the paramount has to be safety, and we have to make sure that what we're doing is, is safe and appropriate. And um, so long as that condition is met, I, I'd be happy to, uh, to revisit any of, these, uh, any of these options. Has the consideration ever been to turn your practice uh, to other parts of the country, given the relationship you've had with the RHA? Um, I, I sometimes think about whether life would be better moving away, and it's a bit of a grass is always greener on the other side. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm from Newfoundland, and most of my family is here, and it's home for me, and I love it here, and I'd, I'd hate to leave. Um, I can't say that I would, I would never, but I haven't uh, reached that point yet. I'd like to ask you a couple of general uh, questions about allergies. So, like, I had pretty heavy hay fever when I was a child. 
If my wife is a teacher, my boys have gone through the K-12 system. There's warnings about, say, scents in this building. But it seems like there's so many more allergies and so many different allergies we never really thought about or talked about. You know, whether it be balloons or kiwi or we all know about peanuts and stuff, but... Has it changed since I've been a child? Because it seems like allergies are much more common and the prevalence of warnings at schools and warnings at businesses is something that I don't remember seeing when I was younger. Yeah, so there's there's been a couple of different factors. If we look at the actual prevalence of food allergy, for example, we see that that has increased um, over time. So there's more uh, food allergy now than there used to be 20 years ago. Um, also, I, I suspect that the number of people who report that they have food allergies, um, whether they are anaphylactic types of allergies or not, has also increased. So there's a high percentage of people who report having allergies. Um, but also the number of people who uh, have confirmed allergies has also increased. So I think there's a, a couple of different factors at play to uh, to consider that. Is there a way for parents, especially when their child is diagnosed early on in life, to help ease the sensitivities associated with their allergy from one thing or another, like little dollops of one thing that they have a negative reaction to? Or is it it is what it is and there's no change until you put, you know, quote unquote, grow out of it? So we know that... um for different types of allergies, the, the answer would be different. So for food allergies, we know that introducing foods early to children um, helps to prevent the development of, of allergies. So around the time when kids start to eat solids, we can introduce any of the commonly allergenic foods. So usually between four and six months, we can start to introduce things like, um, they have to be developmentally appropriate, of course, so not choking hazards, but um, you could loosen up some peanut butter in some, um, in some hot cereal, in some expressed breast milk, in some formula, whatever else the baby was eating, introduce it that way. Other soft foods like uh, scrambled eggs would be fine, um, fish. Um, so all of those foods can be introduced between the ages of, uh, of four to six months or when the baby is uh, ready to start eating solids. Like I mentioned, I had pretty serious hay fever as a child. Like, I mean, uh, administration of needles into the hospital, eyes swollen shut, and knock on wood. I hate to jinx myself, but I've pretty much grown out of it. Is that a likely outcome for many allergies, or are there some that they're lifelong, regardless of how you've been introduced, whether it be hay or kiwi or a balloon? Yeah, so um, some people do grow out of their allergies, and it sounds like you might have had a treatment called um, immunotherapy. Um, so that's a, a treatment that some people would refer to as allergy shots, and there are also tablets available for that, and that's for environmental allergies. And basically the premise is that we expose your body, your immune system, to the allergen and teach your immune system not to react to it. And once people have completed a course of treatment with the um, immunotherapy, in particular the shots, and, and that can take three to five years for them to complete their therapy, um, but many times their allergies will go into remission, and that can last for a long time. Uh, that could be what you've experienced. I, I think it probably was. I was quite young when that was the reality for me in the summer and spring seasons, but I seem to be much, much better with it uh, than I was all those years ago. And that's probably exactly what it was, but of course I was too young to know what I was do dealing with. Uh, yeah. Dr. O'Keefe, really appreciate the time. Would you offer, like to offer anything in summary before we say goodbye? Um, I would just like to say that um, I will, I, I'm not leaving Newfoundland. I know there's been some confusion on some of the social media that I've seen about that, so I'll, I'll continue to practice in Mount Cashel Road. And that if patients have concern about accessing um, 
allergy services, that they should bring those concerns forward, whether it's to Eastern Health or to their uh, provincial government representatives, um, that the patient voices are very effective in terms of bringing about change. So don't underestimate how important your own voice is, that if this is a concern for you, please do use your voice and make yourself heard. And let's hope that there could be a creative solution found so that some of the work you were doing inside a hospital setting can be replicated elsewhere if possible, or there's some work to be done with Eastern Health. Uh, Thanks for your time this morning, Dr. O'Keefe. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a nice day. The very same to you. Bye-bye. Dr. Andrew O'Keefe, allergist and clinical immunologist, and you know, talk about the inflexibility and what the end result was. You heard it from the good doctor himself. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to retired Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Inspector and anti-violence advocate. That's Connie Pike. Hiya, Connie. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. It's been a minute. It has. Um, I wanted to call. Well, first of all, I hope Dr. O'Keefe doesn't leave the province. We need more good doctors like him, uh, not less, that's for sure. And uh, you asked really good questions there in terms of your own experience, and uh, you passed on a lot of valuable information, and I certainly like how he ended his call with using your own voice. So um, those are all good messages he had. 100%. In any event, uh, yeah, I was calling about... um, your caller, say, half an hour, 35 minutes ago, Paul, who had witnessed uh, an act of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So I thought that uh, any chance I ever receive of passing on some information that may be of value to Paul and other people good enough to call, um, I should do that. So... um, In answer to some of his uh, queries there, the number one reason that women stay in these types of relationships is fear. And uh, a lot of times it's fear that the repercussions they'll face will be worse. And it's fear of the unknown of leaving and not having that support, be it, albeit, kind of bad support in many respects, but sometimes it's financial, uh, children can be threatened, pets can be threatened, and um, many times um, these partners are the only uh, breadwinners in the house, so uh, women are dependent on funds and things like that, and, and oftentimes they're denied funds if they don't play the game, so to speak. So there are a lot of uh, reasons that women stay, but the number one is fear, as mentioned. And uh, Paul spelled it all out quite clearly on this woman being in this predicament and then, you know, um, not making an issue of it for herself because she knows what will likely happen if she does. Which is why, I mean, I don't pretend to know everything about such a complicated matter, but you never know what's going on behind those doors, in that home, in that relationship, historical context, her fears, her rationales. So every time that we turn our focus to anything but the violence and the perpetrator, then we're just 
muddying the waters. You know, her fear could be absolutely well-rooted. Maybe she's experienced it. She told her mother that her boyfriend or her husband hit her. The next thing you know, he got she got hit 10 times. Like, who knows what happens here? Which is why I focus on why violence and then doing something about the violence is all that I try to focus on because I don't know their life circumstance. I have no idea if it's the kids, the pets, the money, the fear, the social stigma. I just don't know. Yeah, and your point was well made with Paul when you mentioned two or three times that it's complicated. It very much is. And the common denominator, though, in in all of these cases, generally speaking, is that um, the dynamics remain roughly the same. Everyone's experience is a little bit different. Everyone's uh, receptivity and uh, willingness to put up with certain behaviors is different. Um, On average, a woman is hit 35 times before she will make a report to the police. 35 times. So you have to, you know, with some women, it might be 10 times. With some women, it might be 50. With some women, it's never. I I had a case years and years ago, back in the 80s, with a, a senior couple. Um, she was well into her 80s at the time, 83, I believe, and I think her husband was 85. And we got called by a neighbor. And when I went to the house, he had shoved her across the room and she landed on her side. She was a very small, petite, slight woman. And her her whole side, when I got there, you could tell it was already bruising up. Like it was, you know, she was in a mess. And she did not want to do anything. Now, did I think that was the first time that had happened? Certainly not. You know, that's that's a pattern that you see over and over and over again. And generally, a lot of women will never call. They'll wait until someone else makes that call. Mm -hmm. And then they may be feeling like, okay, I need to say something. Or they could deny. And there are you know, variations in between those two extremes of response. But the the dynamics remain the same, and people have to understand that if this is happening 35 times, the actual physical hitting before a woman calls, then what happens if over the period of her relationship she's only hit five times? I have to let people know that it's the psychological damage that gets done first. Right, of course. And women who women who are in these situations, they will tell you, studies have been done on this, they find that the psychological damage is far worse than the physical hit because the psychological damage happens long before that first hit takes place. It's even just the threat of the hit. I mean, fear is crippling. It certainly can be. Connie, we just cleared 12 o'clock. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time today, but we always have time for you in the future, and hopefully you'll take advantage of that. I certainly will whenever the opportunity arises. Thank you so much. Thanks, Connie. All the best. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. All right. She did have the last word, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.